Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. So much of my work with clients is about relationships, how to have a relationship, how to maintain one, how to communicate with each other, and how to understand our responses to each other. And what emerges in a therapeutic setting is a story. Everyone has a story, and that story is how we understand the person we're in relationship with and also how they began to understand themselves. One way to tell a story in a structured format is through memoir. I'm pleased to have an author with me on the show today. Andrew Zanton is a writer, editor, interviewer, and memoir collaborator. He's worked with civil rights pioneers and Nobel laureates to help people tell their stories in a manner that works for them. He refers to himself as both a practitioner and a theorist of the memoir form. Andrew has worked as an oral historian at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., and he's also taught at the Extension School at Harvard University. But best of all, Andrew is someone I met when I was in elementary school, so we have known each other a very long time, and it is my pleasure to have Andrew Zanton on Perspectives today. So welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to talk about memoir. <laughs> Well, great. So in that vein of us all having a story to tell, I would like to start off if you could tell us um, your story of how you came, uh, not to necessarily to writing memoirs, but just how did you choose to write for a living in general? Well, um, I have always been fascinated with words. Uh, at a very young age, I'm talking about maybe age three or so, I, I realized that words rhymed and would often just sit amusing myself by trying to think up as many rhymes as I could. I was fascinated with you know, palindromes, the idea that words could be inverted and looked at forwards and backwards. I'm uh, just very much a word nerd, uh, although in my sort of social group, being an athlete was the real thing to be. So I, I sort of hid this in the background. Um, I also was very interested in asking questions, and a very common dynamic in my childhood was I would ask somebody, either a good friend or just an acquaintance, you know, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite movie? And the response very often was, why do you want to know? Why are you asking? <laughs> um, and so one of the liberating things about being a memoir collaborator is nobody ever says that. You know, it's just assumed I'm helping them to write a book. I'm helping them to create their life story. So I don't get that reflexive, you know, why are you asking? And that's, it's just a pleasure. That's wonderful. So have you been writing pretty much as since you left college or um, did you do? Yes, yes. Uh, and I tried to write letters, uh, you know, juvenile, I'm sure. But even as a child, I was trying to figure out how to write um, of course, it was sort of obligatory to pretend to not like any of the writing assignments at the school that you and I both went to, um, but I loved them um, just because it was like a puzzle to do. And, and unlike some of the other math science sort of things, I was naturally good at it. So um, I was always looking for, for ways to write. And when you were working as an oral historian, how did that lead you possibly to memoir or was this in your mind when you started there or how does that fit in? Well, um, don't think that I'm dodging the question, but I, I will, I will answer it. But let me just say that there is a very, very characteristic ways for men and women to answer the question of how did you come to be doing what you're doing? And okay. we can talk more about that in a later segment if you're interested, but men tend to use a format that, presumes that they've gotten exactly what they wanted out of life. Um, I came, I saw, I conquered. And so it's, it's interesting to me, I'm very aware of this, and I'm skeptical when I interview a man and he says, oh, you know, it was just very easy. I, I knew from the beginning I wanted to do this, and I pursued it. 
and I found it. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical of that because it doesn't match with my uh, experience. And yet I find I do the same thing. You know, when you ask me, you know, how did you become a writer or how did you become a memoir writer? It's very tempting for me to say, oh, you know, I knew from the beginning. Uh, one piece of this, which is very important, is that I am a Quaker. And um, that felt deeply right to me um, as a child in some of the same ways that writing did. The idea of being a pacifist, not mm -hmm. passive, but a pacifist in the sense of not um, taking part in conflict, not sanctioning violence, except in, in dire emergencies. Right. Um, and so wanting to be a Quaker, um, the first bomb makers were, were striking to me. The people who figured out how to build an atomic bomb and then decided to drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Um, and there's a little book, Hiroshima, which came out as a, a full piece in the New Yorker at the time of the, the Hiroshima bomb. Uh -huh. It's a classic of nonfiction writing. So all these kind of pieces fit together. Nonfiction writing on a very high level, um, pacifism, Quakerism, um, and what were these people thinking? And, and going back to the curiosity I had, that's kind of what I was always wondering. Look, I'd look at somebody's face. I'd look at what they were doing, and I'd think, what's behind that face? What are they thinking? What were they thinking 10 minutes ago? Why are they doing what they're doing? It was a kind of a, a constant interest in what makes people tick. So this was a huge question. What, what were the people thinking who built that atomic bomb? And I found out that the Smithsonian had an oral history program that was asking that very question. And um, I grew up in Washington, as you know, and the Smithsonian was in Washington, the program was in Washington. So that was just sort of lucky to get into that. And through that program, I met Eugene Vigner, one of these bomb makers, and I can tell more of the story if you're interested, but he ended up being my first memoir subject. Well, that's actually, it's actually fascinating to me how the pacifism and the Quaker, um, your affinity with Quakerism and your, the importance of being a Quaker to you would lead you initially to a bomb maker. Um, it's a... Uh, mm -hmm it's almost, it almost doesn't make sense. Um, and the, uh -huh. do you think it had to do with, well, what exactly did it have to do with? <laughs> well, I, I guess you're always trying to stretch yourself, or at least I am. Um, in other words, if you were interviewing an actor, um, there are some people who are typecast and essentially play the same role again and again. But I think if it's a good actor or actress, they would say, oh, please give me those roles that really stretch me. You know, have right. me play a, a murderer or have me play a saint. Have me play someone stranded in the desert in a foreign country that I've never even visited. You know, make me, make me stretch to understand and portray that person. And so and that's kind of what I'm doing. I, I didn't know much about physics. I, I didn't know much about Hungary, although the name Zantin is of Hungarian descent. Um, I was just fascinated to to be stretched that much, to, to, to have the privilege of being with this person and being able to ask him these questions. What were you thinking? What, what was going through your mind? Knowing that I would have some um, tendency to judge, but ultimately I don't think that's, that's the writer's job there to judge in the same way it's not the actor's job to judge. You're portraying. You're helping them to say what they want to say. You raise a number of points that I, I want to be able to cover and go back to. Um, and But before we go into that and those specific questions, I just want to backtrack for a minute and, and talk about memoir um, from a definitional point of view. Is there a standard sure. definition yeah. of a memoir? There are different definitions. Um, I will just share with you mine, and I should emphasize this is sort of personal. Um, I like to make a distinction between the memoir on one hand and the autobiography on the other. So a biography, um, you know, just to be clear here, is, is an outside person looking at a life. Um, so, you know, he did this, she did this. You're essentially, you know, looking at someone else's life that's not yours. Both memoir and autobiography are told by the person whose life it is. But in an autobiography, you're really trying to do the life and times 
whereas the memoir is more sort of poignant incidents from a life. And I'll give you an example. Okay. If the person was a, a general in the Civil War and they were doing their autobiography, I think what they would need to do would be to come to grips with why, in heaven's name, had the United States of America gotten into a civil war? Why okay. was slavery such a difficult political issue that it had brought on a massive war, one region against another? That wouldn't necessarily be in a memoir of the Civil War general. The memoir of the Civil War general would be, how did it feel to walk out on that battlefield? You know, what color was the sky? How cold was it? What were the expressions on the faces of the soldiers as you led them into battle? It's a much more personal and intimate thing. So the advantage of an autobiography is it, it does give a sense of the times. And sometimes with, with memoirs, people will say, well, what's the point of reading this other person's life? Well, if you, if you really give a rich sense of the times, there's a lot. Um, but the disadvantage of the, the autobiography is sometimes if you get too much into the times, you fail to write the book that only you could write. And if any of your listeners are thinking about doing a memoir, that's one of the, the fundamental points that I would hope would come through. Try to write the book that only you could write. So a memoir sounds like a much more emotional um, telling of a life or a, an event. Is that yes. A, a mem- and a memoir does not need to be as comprehensive as I said, sort of poignant incidents. It can be almost sort of moments from a life. But each one of those moments has to be conveyed in a way that's sort of powerful. The sights, the sounds, the aromas, the feelings. You, that you really feel as if you're inside the skin of that person. So and then sometimes somebody... It, it seems as if... And sorry to interrupt you on this, but it seems as if writing a memoir would actually be far more challenging from the the actual writing perspective than an autobiography because it sounds like an autobiography would be much more factual. Um, Not to say that a memoir is not factual, but... um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that would tend to be true. But keep in mind, you know, there's often hybrids of this. So somebody might give me a a draft of a memoir that they tried to write themselves and they might say, I'm just... I'm just exhausted. I'm drained. You know, writing these poignant things, I'm proud that I've done it, but I just feel like it's just taking too much out of me. And at that point, I'll step in and say, well, what if we did a little bit of the the times? You know, let's suppose you're writing something about, you know, coming out as a trans woman right now. And and it's just been so difficult to write about your family's rejection and your this and that. Okay. What if we take a step back and talk about what does trans mean in 2019? versus 2009 or 1989. Um, And sometimes that's a way for someone to sort of regain their strength, take a breath, um, give some background and depth and perspective that will help their book. And then when they're ready, they get personal again. So so you interject the the context of whatever the topic is in and around the, the emotional poignant moments of that person's life is that is that how you how sure. you work when you sure when but, you but I, I might do the same thing yeah but I'm, I want to make clear that if they if somebody handed me a memoir especially if they weren't sure what to do next or were drained I would suggest putting in some autobiography in other words more of the the times but I would also do the reverse sometimes people come to me and they've really written the times they've written the autobiography and it doesn't really have enough poignant moments. And then I will do the reverse. I'll say, you've done a great job with the times. We have a great idea of, you know, what the the period of history that you've lived through was about, but we don't have quite enough poignant incidents. Can you get a little bit more personal? Can you remember some particular vignettes that will have full of sights and sounds and very strong feelings? So it, it sounds as if, um, and we just have a couple of minutes in this segment, but it sounds as if People come to you frequently with things that they've already started to write and possibly they're stuck um, and have a hard time moving forward and you're able to help them with that. But I believe you also just also come in and write for people because they want to tell their story, but they are not able or willing to write it themselves. Is that also the case? Right. 
I, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about my, my career, my job, is that no two projects are the same. In some cases, people want me to write every single word. They just want a, it to be their thoughts. And other times they've got a manuscript and they don't want it changed all that much, but they do want me to give a, a frank appraisal of where it is now and what it needs. So one of the questions that I think is interesting in the course of writing a memoir is to ask the client, where is your ego invested? Interesting. You know, what, do you, what, what do you really care about that the world would think of you? Um, and, you know, people are very, very different about where their ego is invested. For some people, part of that, the ego investment is, I am an author, and I don't need anyone's help. Thank you very much. Uh, and in so, that case, I can see early on that I'm, I need to give them advice sort of behind the scenes, but I'm not going to be featured as a co-author. Right. Other so people are and, very glad to have me as a co-author. I'm going to interrupt you right there, Andrew, because this is a, an important topic that I would like to sort of take a little bit further after we come back from our commercial break. So we're going to go to a short commercial break. Please stay tuned. We're talking about memoirs and how telling your story um, will be could be healing to you when we come back. If you have questions, you can email me, Dr. Vidisha Patel at drvforkids at yahoo.com. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Dr. Vidisha Patel is a licensed mental health counselor working at Peace of Heart LLC in Sarasota, Florida. Peace of Heart offers individual counseling with children and adults, as well as programs in stress reduction. Dr. Patel utilizes a relationship-based approach to treatment. She is currently accepting new patients. To find out more, visit peaceofheartllc.com or in Florida, Call 941-539-1727. Again, that's peaceofheartllc.com or call 941-539-1727. Peace of Heart LLC, managing emotions for a healthier lifestyle. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number 4, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I am your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm in conversation with Andrew Zantin, writer, teacher, and expert on memoirs. So, Andrew, when we went to the break, just before that, you were talking about um, discussing with your client, trying to find out where their ego is in the memoir process. Did I understand that correctly? Right. I mean, my feeling is that everyone has an ego, um, but it's sometimes invested in places that you wouldn't expect. Uh, you've probably seen people who are about 90 years old and they still have blonde hair and they have you know, done various operations so the skin is tight on their face. And it's, their, their ego seems to be invested in trying to look as youthful as possible. Um, that's not a choice that I would make, but I try not to be judgmental. It's just interesting to me. That person really wants to look young. Right. In the same way, somebody often will have a lot of ego invested in seeming to have had a successful life. At the same time, they may have an underlying desire to be brutally honest about their life, which may bring out things that are much less happy. And so the conscious reason for beginning to write 
may not be the real reason or certainly not the only reason. And allowing that other side, the darker side to come out without blowing up the project is another challenge for me, but one I find very interesting. So how do you, how do you manage that? How do you dis- discover that when somebody comes to you interested in having your help in writing their memoir? Um, how do you, do you just come out and ask them? Yeah. I mean, you know, just like anything that you've done and done and done, you, you just learn um, a little bit better than the average person how to evaluate what you're hearing. Um, I sometimes use a metaphor where, you know, geologists are sometimes paid a lot of money by oil companies to predict, you know, where there's going to be oil. Um, and they will, you know, make soundings and they use various technological equipment and everything. But, you know, it comes down to interpreting that. And for most people, there's just not nearly enough information to make a judgment. But if that's really what you do, you know, 40 hours a week for 40 years, <laughs> you, you can look at it and tell the oil company, yeah, drill here. There's a lot of oil. And that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm asking questions um, and then making a judgment about where there's oil. Uh, one just very uh, simple thing is a very abrupt and short answer. You know, so you say, are you close to your mother? Yes. You close to your father? How about this older brother? You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you keep in touch with your sister? Yep. <laughs> if somebody just says yup and, and they sort of bark it out and say nothing more that's a tip off a lot of times that there's all kinds of stuff in there but so, it may not make sense to pursue it right then so actually um, that's very similar I mean I know that uh, psychology counseling and therapy may, is not the same thing as helping people write their memoirs but that relationship that you you uh, create with the person who you're working with is comparable to a relationship that a therapist might engage with their clients because you start to read their cues is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a good deal of carryover, although the stakes are raised in a sense because you're creating a document, which at least a certain number of people will read. Uh, Whereas in therapy, there's a, sort of assumption of confidentiality that, you know, this doesn't go beyond this room. Right. So do you have um, examples where you have misread somebody in terms of their intentions of what they want to do with their story? Or, um, I mean, I'm sure it's hard to get it right every time, but do you have any, any instances that really stick out for you that were challenging for you? Um, I guess I won't give a particular example because these things are are pretty sensitive, but I have learned, I can say in general, that when someone is talking about their um, primary occupation that they've had in life, where they've made their money, um, you have to be very careful about setbacks and and disappointments in that area, for men especially. Um, It's just hard to sort of say, you know, I, I may have chosen the wrong career or I made a basic, you know, mistake in how I pursued this. If you keep talking long enough and you have the kind of rapport that develops um, most of the time, the, the confession will come out if it's going to come out. It's better not to pry it out. Um, there's a sense of people feel I'm being judged here um, when you pry things out. Whereas if you just listen and they, they come out with it themselves, then it's more of an empathetic situation. Another metaphor I sometimes use is a biographer is like a judge. A memoir collaborator, what, what I am, is like a defense lawyer. So <laughs> I'm trying to be your defense lawyer. I'm trying to get your story and put it in a form that will be most advantageous for you. In the same way that you shouldn't lie to your defense lawyer because he might say something in open court that could be proven to be wrong. You probably shouldn't lie to your <laughs> memoir collaborator because I might write something that we, someone could prove is wrong. But you should always feel that I'm on your side and you should always see, feel that I'm trying to help you present yourself. You should never feel that I'm a prosecutor and you should never feel that I'm the judge. 
Well, and so this brings me back to something that you had said initially in the first segment um, that I'd like to go to, which is judgment. Um, the very first example you gave us was of of a, of a person who practice something that is quite contrary to your belief system. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you have come across lots of people, as we all have, who have a belief system who, that are, that's just different from the way either we were raised or what we believe in now. Um, how do you separate yourself from, from that? How do you leave the judgment out? I would imagine it could be quite challenging. Yeah, it is. Um, although there was an interesting twist to the Eugene Wigner. He was the, the bomb maker. Um, last name is spelled W-I-G-N-E-R, so it looks like Wigner, but he's a deeply profound Hungarian physicist, chemist, engineer, uh, just a brilliant guy and won a Nobel in 1963, uh, the year you and I were born. Anyway, he um, had built this bomb and it was sort of a big thing for me to tell him one afternoon, you know, I really have problems with how this was used. Um, because the standard thing at the time was, you know, the invasion of Japan was supposed to cost a million men. The, the Japanese were saying they were going to defend every little island there. And um, the conventional estimates for the, the losses to, for an invasion were one million soldiers. So the, the conventional idea at the time was that it saved lives to use it. But when I finally kind of worked up my courage and told Eugene Wigner how I felt, he said he largely agreed. He had never intended this to be dropped on civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To him, the atomic bomb was a weapon to be used against Adolf Hitler in Germany. And it just wasn't ready in time. Germany had been defeated conventionally before the bomb was ready. Then the question was, do you put it aside and not use it? Or do you use it with a pretty sure confidence that will end the war? Right. Wow. That's so, it. so this big moment of kind of confronting him with my disagreement um, turned out quite differently than I thought. And we had a moment of sort of at least partial agreement. That's great. It's, um, it's amazing how when you ask questions, people are often afraid to ask questions or to comment right. when they are in disagreement with somebody. But that's just a great example of how actually asking questions and without, I suppose, an expectation of, an ans- of what the answer will be actually leads you to a deeper relationship with the person, um, whether you continue to disagree or not. Right. And I might just add that another thing that I've learned again and again in doing interviews, often with people traumatized over the loss of a parent, a loss of a child, some terrible loss, a death in the family, is that people will come to them later and say, I never said how sorry I was because I didn't know how to say it. I wasn't sure that I could find the words that would adequately express what I wanted to say. And so I said nothing. And if the people I've interviewed, you know, by the dozens, by the hundreds are any indication, it's much better to try and say it poorly, say it awkwardly, and just tell the person, I think I'm probably saying this in a very poor, inadequate way, but I just want to say, I'm sorry. I just want to say, this is terrible. I just want to hug you. Just, just try that the effort made in a sincere way is the right way to go rather than holding back because you can't do it perfectly. That's, that's another great point. There's so many of us out there who are always striving to do the right thing, say the right thing, say it in the right way have the best outcome. And I think in all of our anxiety and concern about getting it right, we often don't do it at all. And then in some sad cases, the opportunity is missed. Um, Right. And so I think that's a great piece of advice for everybody in any situation is that if you have a, if you have a thought, put it out there because the worst that can happen is that it, it, might not be accepted, but that's okay. <laughs> right. Um, so you made another point that I also found interesting, and you alluded to it a couple of times, and that's about 
the masculine and the feminine. So how men and women right. handle men more differently or tell their story differently. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic, not just for the way men and women currently are, but also about how we raise children, how we how we raise boys and girls. And we can get to that if you're interested. Men tend to simplify, streamline the narrative. So problems and and um, that were sort of heroically overcome are okay, but just little annoying things are, are airbrushed out of the picture. Um, let's say there's a couple and they're happily sitting there together holding hands on their sofa and I'm interviewing them. I ask the, the husband, how did you meet your wife and how did you get married? And he'll say, oh, it was very simple. It was 1943 during World War II. I went to a USO dance in Fort Worth, Texas. I looked across the room and I saw the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And there she is now. <laughs> it's, that, it's that simple. And it makes a kind of a nice story. It's cute. It's, it's nice. If you ask the very same woman who's sitting next to him on the sofa, she might laugh and say, well, you know, I was dating somebody else at the time and he was dating somebody else. Our families never much liked each other. You know, my father wasn't convinced he was ever going to have a nickel to his name. You know, we dated a little on and off. You see what I'm saying? It's a much more unromantic, um, pragmatic, detailed rendering. Okay. Another striking difference is that women tend to pay much more tribute to mentors of theirs when they talk about what happened. Anything from the best friend who drove them to their job interview and encouraged them all the way and held their hand, or the mother who gave them great advice the night before the big election, or the you know the best friend who made coffee and and did the child care when they had to you know a big presentation at work. Um, it just seems to be more second nature for women to pay tribute to others, um, and I think that there's multiple reasons for it, but one of them seems to be that girls are much more preoccupied, you know, girls in childhood, uh -huh. with avoiding getting the label of being someone conceited or stuck up. Um, boys don't worry about that as much. Um, boasting is a quality that sort of comes more naturally to them, and they, they don't pay as much of a social sanction for that. Do, so, do you think that it comes more naturally, or do you think that they're conditioned that way by by I'm sorry. I think I, I meant to say conditioned. I think it's a part of our society, but of many societies in the world, most of them probably, um, that boys are allowed to tell stories in this way, um, gathering credit to themselves. Um, and girls are discouraged from doing that and encouraged to um, be modest and pay tribute to others. Interesting. So it starts in childhood and then you see it when they are much, even when they're much older. So it can, it continues. Obviously it's something that's been so conditioned. I think if you age. took, if you took a, a classroom of, you know, third graders and asked them to write a memoir about their proudest moment, their greatest achievement or something like that, mm -hmm. you would find even difference at that age. The, the girls would be more likely to give credit to others who'd help them achieve this. And boys would be more likely to present it as if, it was only them. Um, so then an interesting thing as a parent is, do you, if you have a son, do you push them a little bit to, to be more comfortable with the female style? If you have a daughter, do you push her a little bit more um, with, the, with the masculine style? Right. So I'm going to stop you right there because we're going to go to one more short commercial break. So please don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more about telling our personal stories. And we'll talk a little bit about how they might heal us and those around us as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Dr. Vadisha Patel 
is a licensed mental health counselor working at Peace of Heart LLC in Sarasota, Florida. Peace of Heart offers individual counseling with children and adults, as well as programs in stress reduction. Dr. Patel utilizes a relationship-based approach to treatment. She is currently accepting new patients. To find out more, visit peaceofheartllc.com or in Florida, call 941-539-1727. Again, that's peaceofheartllc.com or call 941-539-1727. Peace of Heart LLC, managing emotions for a healthier lifestyle. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please get in touch with me via email at drvforkids at yahoo.com. I would love to hear any questions or comments you may have. And I'm here with Andrew Zanton, a lifelong friend of mine, an author, a teacher, and an expert on memoir. So, Andrew, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of the different types of memoirs you might write, and you had mentioned to me about um, the difference between the individual versus the family story. So, Right. I, I'm just fascinated with um, how the individual versus the family plays out in writing a memoir. As you think about our country for a second you could argue we are the most individualistic nation in the history of the world. And we have this founding creed about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Right in our declaration of independence, independence, freedom. Again and again, is this idea that we need to be able to break away from constraints and lead the life that we want to live. Um, At the same time, the family I know you're from a close family. I'm in a very close family. I think having an unusual name, that in itself sort of binds you. Uh, the Zantons are a tiny tribe, and you, you feel that in a, at a very young age. The family has its place, and it has its claim on people. If we are truly independent, then every family member should be able to define for themselves exactly what they are and what they're not. And the family doesn't really have much of a role in saying who someone is. But I think if you think back over your own life or if your listeners think back over their own lives, parents do quite a bit of telling children who they are at a young age. And the family has a very strong interest in the family enduring. So I listened to one of your previous shows, which I thought was fascinating about the difficulties that people who are gay or trans or, you know, other in some way can have. Uh, outside of the mainstream framework, can have, um, you know, with that experience. And there's certainly a great deal of uh, ignorance and homophobia that's out there. Um, I don't want to, you know, ignore that or make light of that. Um, But I would argue that there's something beyond, it's not just homophobia that makes people tell their children to not talk about being gay or not talk about being depressed Um, It's that the family wants to endure. The senior members of the family, the elders who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they have an intense interest in the family enduring, which means they want children and grandchildren to be marriageable and to to procreate and for new, new children to come along and renew the family. So for somebody to say, hello, you know, I'm severely depressed. Um, that's not something that another clan is going to want to hear. They're not going to want to mingle their genes with that person. If someone <laughs> right. says, I'm gay, 
um, it just creates an immediate problem for an elder who's trying to thinking about marrying them off and, and having more children come along. So um, I've talked to a number of people who are heterosexual, but just for whatever reasons have chosen not to have children. And they too get intense pressure from their parents right. um, in many cases. So anyway, I just think that, that the issue of to what extent are we individuals who should have full range of options in front of us and define ourselves however we want, and to what extent are we members of a family, a tribe, a clan, with a responsibility to that family, tribe, clan. And it definitely comes out with memoir because people very often in a memoir, they want to talk about what's most unusual about them, what's most difficult about them. And there are things that don't make the family look particularly good. I find that really interesting that people, I mean, I know people write journals. I write in a journal. I recommend a lot of my clients write in journals to help them sort through a lot of emotions that they have. And I always stress the importance of it being confidential and it's just for them Mm -hmm. so they can say what they want. But here you're saying when people are writing memoir, they are looking to bring out some of those difficult situations and feelings. So they're they're wanting to make it more public. Is, did I understand you correctly? Right. Yes, and they're again, they're living in a country whose nominal creed is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the family's creed might be something more like life, responsibility, and duty to family, <laughs> and those are just in conflict. So a, pers- a young person has to kind of tease out that conflict and, and steer their way in between that and make their peace with it and, and be more one than the other. So, Sometimes the- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, here's a, a something which has happened several times in my career. Someone has will tell me, I've been telling my family for years that I'm going to write their mem- my memoir. And every Thanksgiving we get together and, you know, we're not get along all that well. But, you know, I told them again this year and I said, and I've hired Andrew Zan, the professional, and he's helping me do it. Um, well, all these years, the family thought this is just talk. It's not actually going to happen. So when they, when they hear that he's hired a professional, they perk up and immediately say, well, please do not say anything about daddy's drinking. <laughs> and then the person says, that's chapter one. Right? So what's happening there is that conflict. One, one side is thinking, how can you do this to the family? It's not fair to publish a book that will portray our father as an alcoholic, even though we all know that he was. We can acknowledge around the dinner table that he was but you don't have the right to write that. But if it's, if, if it's all life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they absolutely have the right. So it's just these two sets of rights and responsibilities and these two creeds are kind of in conflict and we don't have an easy way to kind of negotiate the conflict. Well, this is actually where I think that writing a memoir is, can be very therapeutic, um, not only for an individual but for the family unit, because it brings to the surface things that people have not talked about or have a, some may have assumed to be things that are not meant to be talked about or known. Um, right. And it seems like by having somebody from the outside, like you, come in and ask questions that are thought-provoking, um, it allows the family to have conversation. And as we said initially, in, in that conversation and the ability to say things to each other and have that relationship, you can actually find some level of healing. So do you think that um, some of your clients have um, found the process to be therapeutic or have you noticed that it might have been therapeutic for them and or their families? Definitely. And I would say especially some of the older people who, you know, have come from a generation where therapy was not something they were comfortable with, especially men. I've had a number of of wives sort of chuckle a little bit and say, my husband would never have done therapy, but this is (laughs) kind of the next best thing. (laughs) And I also, I wonder, do some people wait till they're older to write their memoirs and say things openly and honestly about 
their family members and their family situations with people who have already passed away because they feel more comfortable talking about it now that you know so daddy had a drinking problem and daddy's not alive anymore so it's okay to now talk about it because he may not have liked it but yes it it does become easier it's it's never you know completely easy um, and just to go back to the essential, you know, decision to, to write or not to write, one thing that I try to tell people is nobody, nobody, not even your siblings, have the right to tell you that you can't write something. Where they do have a role is in negotiating with you about the distribution of your writing. So that there will be... That, that, make, that makes sense. Some people who will write a, just a hair-raising memoir about, you know, family abuse, drinking, any number of things, and they just... They tell their children, this is in my desk drawer, and I want you to see it when I'm gone. But, but I don't need to publish this. I needed to do this for myself. It's catharsis. And I'd like my children to know because it had a huge effect on my childhood. But I don't need a commercial publication of this. And, and that is something that the siblings will often accept. A harder case is when the person is really determined to try to publish it commercially. Right. Interesting. So then it, that's also another um, question that I have in terms of people writing memoirs, are they typically doing it for mass publication or do you find it, be, do you find that more people are doing it for personal, personal reasons? It's usually mixed. Um, I guess personal reasons is the most common, but it's not uncommon at all for someone to say, if lightning would strike, I would love it. I, you know, I want to be played by John Travolta in the movie. Um, <laughs> And then I kind of groan a little bit because I know from experience how unlikely that John Travolta is ever going to hear about this project. But, you know, it can happen. You, nobody knows. Um, so I usually just warn people that we want to take it a step at a time. We want to take a few baby steps to get started and see how we feel about each other. And, you know, a little bit at a time, figure out what their budget is, figure out what the timetable is. Another big takeaway that I might just share with listeners is many times people feel that they have to really learn how to write a memoir in an excellent way before they can even get started. And during the, the years when they're trying to figure out how to write a memoir, key people pass away who would have been great to interview. Uh, so if there's anyone out there who's thinking about a memoir and is just not sure that their writing is up to speed at the current moment, I'd urge you just get a tape recorder and have the important senior folks in the family talk into it. If you keep the tapes, you can always at some later point, you know, use them when you sit down to write. But um, people who are elderly should be recorded in some way. That is a, a wonderful piece of advice and something that I need to follow as well, because the elders in the family are the ones who have, they have the key to the stories of where our families came from. And right. If we don't document them in some format, we too will forget them and um, the stories will then right. be lost. So we have a couple of minutes left and I wanted to um, ask you to talk about situation versus story and what exactly that means. Okay, so um, situation and story is interesting to me because you and probably you know your listeners know somebody or some people whose lives just don't seem interesting for some reason. Um, you know, you see them at the, the party at Christmas and how are you doing? Uh, got started about 7.10, 7.15. We drove over here. Not too much traffic. Yeah, you know, still live in the same old house. Yeah, same old thing. Yeah. And you're almost itching to kind of get away from them. It's a little embarrassing. You, you like them and yet you think, this is, is dull. You know, I, I can't hide my feeling that I, I'd just rather not be talking to this person. So what is that? And I think what's the analytical tool that's been helpful to me is that that is a person reciting their situation. We all have a situation. It's the, the address where we live and what time we left for the Christmas party. Um, but that's not our story. So some people will recite their situation. And if you kind of come at them and say, Okay, let's start again. What, what have been the biggest challenges in your life? What have been the most extreme states of feeling in your life? The time when you were happiest, angriest? They'll just dispense with that you know, recitation of their situation and they will give you a story. 
In other cases, people are so used to just presenting their situation that they get uncomfortable when asked about their story. So I, I don't, you know, it's not always a happy thing when you try to penetrate that mask of the situation. Right. But I would encourage people to think that everybody is interesting. Everybody has a story that's interesting. And if you really find that, that somebody you know is boring, you're probably just getting the situation for whatever reason. There is a story there. That's a great perspective because I think you're right. I think we we all have stories to tell and they're all important and they're important for different reasons and to different people. Um, and it it sort of boils down to, are we right, asking the right questions? What do you think about that? Well, I'll give you a, a concrete example that, that Vivian Gornick, who's written about this in something of the situation in the story, um, does beautifully. But she had an aunt who asked her whether Vivian could come along and just help her go to the dentist. And uh, Vivian said, sure, I'll go to the dentist with you. And Vivian sat in the waiting room, you know, reading Highlights magazine or whatever was out there and waiting for her aunt to be done. In the middle of the appointment, her aunt sort of cried out a little bit, not terribly, but, you know, the dentist hadn't used enough Novocaine. And there was this little cry and Vivian recognized that that was her aunt crying. And the aunt came out and they went home together. And when Vivian years later was thinking about how to write her memoir, she kept coming back to this situation and thinking, why, do, why am I even writing about this? It was just dopey going to the dentist. <laughs> so what she realized after analyzing it is the situation was she went to the dentist with her aunt. But the story was we cannot prevent those we love from suffering. Uh, even if we go with them and sit with them and are right in the next room, they will suffer and there's nothing we can do. That's, that was deep for her. That was a very sensitive, vulnerable, beautiful, strange, difficult idea for her. And that's the story trying to get out. That's beautiful, so that's Andrew. Another- that's absolutely beautiful. And I think that's going to be a wonderful way to end our show today. It's been great having you on and talking to you. I thank you so much for joining us today to all the listeners as well on Perspectives. I've been talking to Andrew Zanton on his, on his perspectives about writing memoir as a profession and potentially maybe a healing modality for those telling their stories. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives. I look forward to being back with you next week for another edition. So feel free to email me at drvforkids at yahoo.com with any questions or comments. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week. 